0: Notes for the audiobook edition. The following unabridged reading is the first volume of Moral Letters to Lucilius, consisting of the first 65 letters of that work. For pronunciation of Latin terms and names, the classical pronunciation has been preferred, although exceptions have been made in cases where it was felt that the reader might lose clarity regarding who or what is being discussed. Special thanks to Aaron's Schumate for making her time and expertise available for
1: consultation. Letter 1. On Saving Time Greetings from
0: Seneca to his friend Lucilius. Continue to act thus, my dear Lucilius. Set yourself free for your own sake. Gather and save your time, which till lately has been forced from you, or filched away, or has merely slipped from your hands. Make yourself believe the truth of my words, that certain moments are torn from us, that some are gently removed, and that others glide beyond our reach. The most disgraceful kind of loss, however, is that due to carelessness. Furthermore, if you will pay close heed to the problem, you will find that the largest portion of our life passes while we are doing ill. A goodly share while we are doing nothing, and the whole while we are doing that which is not to the purpose. What man can you show me who places any value on his time, who reckons the worth of each day, who understands that he is dying daily? For we are mistaken when we look forward to death. The major portion of death has already passed. Whatever years be behind us are in death's hands. Therefore, Lucilius, do as you write me that you are doing. Hold every hour in your grasp. Lay hold of today's task, and you will not need to depend so much upon tomorrow's. While we are postponing, life speeds by. Nothing, Lucilius, is ours except time. We were entrusted by nature with the ownership of this single thing, so fleeting and slippery, that anyone who will can oust us from possession. What fools these mortals be. They allow the cheapest and most useless things, which can easily be replaced, to be charged in the reckoning after they have acquired them. But they never regard themselves as in debt when they have received some of that precious commodity, time. And yet, time is the one loan which even a grateful recipient cannot repay. You may desire to know how I, who preach to you so freely, am practicing. I confess frankly, my expense account balances, as you would expect from one who is free-handed but careful. I cannot boast that I waste nothing, but I can at least tell you what I am wasting, and the cause and manner of the loss. I can give you the reasons why I am a poor man. My situation, however, is the same as that of many who are reduced to slender means through no fault of their own. Everyone forgives them but no one comes to their rescue. What is the state of things, then? It is this. I do not regard a man as poor, if the little that remains is enough for him. I advise you, however, to keep what is really yours, and you cannot begin too early, for, as our ancestors believed, it is too late to spare when you reach the dregs of the cask.
1: Of that which remains at the bottom, The amount is slight, and the quality is vile. Farewell. Letter Two On Discursiveness in Reading Judging by what you write me, and by what I hear,
0: I am forming a good opinion regarding your future. You do not run hither and thither, And distract yourself by changing your abode, for such restlessness is the sign of a disordered spirit. The primary indication, to my thinking, of a well-ordered mind is a man's ability to remain in one place and linger in his own company. Be careful, however, lest this reading of many authors and books of every sort may tend to make you discursive and unsteady. You must linger among a limited number of master thinkers, And digest their works if you would derive ideas which shall win firm hold in your mind. Everywhere means nowhere. When a person spends all his time in foreign travel, he ends by having many acquaintances, but no friends. And the same thing must hold true of men who seek intimate acquaintance with no single author, but visit them all in a hasty and hurried manner. Food does no good and is not assimilated into the body if it leaves the stomach as soon as it is eaten. Nothing hinders a cure so much as frequent change of medicine. No wound will heal when one salve is tried after another. A plant which is often moved can never grow strong. There is nothing so efficacious that it can be helpful while it is being shifted about, and in reading of many books is distraction accordingly, since you cannot read all the books which you may possess, it is enough to possess only as many books as you can read. But, you reply, I wish to dip first into one book and then into another. I tell you that it is the sign of an overnice appetite to toy with many dishes, for when they are manifold and varied, they cloy, but do not nourish. So you should always read standard authors, and when you crave a change, fall back upon those whom you read before. Each day acquire something that will fortify you against poverty, against death indeed, against other misfortunes as well, and after you have run over many thoughts, select one to be thoroughly digested that day. This is my own custom. From the many things which I have read, I claim some one part for myself. The thought for today is one which I discovered in Epicurus, for I am wont to cross over even into the enemy's camp, not as a deserter, but
1: as a scout. He says, Contented poverty is an honorable estate. Indeed,
0: if it be contented, it is not poverty at all. It is not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more that is poor. What does it matter how much a man has laid up in his safe or in his warehouse, how large are his flocks and how fat his dividends, if he covets his neighbor's property and reckons not his past gains, but his hopes of gains to come? Do you ask what is the proper limit to wealth? It is first to have what is necessary,
1: and, second, to have what is enough. Farewell. Letter Three On True and False Friendship You have sent a letter to me through the hand of a friend of yours, as you call him,
0: and in your very next sentence you warn me, not to discuss with him all the matters that concern you, saying that even you yourself are not accustomed to do this. In other words, you have in the same letter affirmed and denied that he is your friend. Now, if you used this word of ours in the popular sense, and called him friend in the same way in which we speak of all candidates for election as honorable gentlemen, and as we greet all men with whom we meet casually, If their names slip us for the moment with the salutation, My dear sir, so be it. But if you consider any man a friend whom you do not trust as you trust yourself, you are mightily mistaken, and you do not sufficiently understand what true friendship means. Indeed, I would have you discuss everything with a friend, but first of all, discuss the man himself. When friendship is settled, you must trust. Before friendship is formed, you must pass judgment. Those persons, indeed, put last first and confound their duties, who, violating the rules of Theophrastus, judge a man after they have made him their friend, instead of making him their friend after they have judged him. Ponder for a long time whether you shall admit a given person to your friendship, but when you have decided to admit him, welcome him with all your heart and soul. Speak as boldly with him as with yourself. As to yourself, although you should live in such a way that you trust your own self with nothing which you could not entrust even to your enemy, yet, since certain matters occur which convention keeps secret, you should share with a friend at least all your worries and reflections. Regard him as loyal, and you will make him loyal. Some, for example, fearing to be deceived, have taught men to deceive by their suspicions they have given their friend the right to do wrong why need i keep back any words in the presence of my friend why should i not regard myself as alone when in his company there is a class of men who communicate to any one whom they meet matters which should be revealed to friends alone and unload upon the chance listener whatever irks them others again fear to confide in their closest intimates and if it were possible they would not trust even themselves burying their secrets deep in their hearts but we should do neither it is equally faulty to trust everyone and to trust no one yet the former fault is i should say the more ingenious the latter more safe in like manner you should rebuke these two kinds of men both those who always lack repose, and those who are always in repose. For love of bustle is not industry, it is only the restlessness of a hunted mind. And true repose does not consist in condemning all motion as merely vexation. That kind of repose is slackness and inertia. Therefore, you should note the following saying, taken from my reading in Pomponius. Some men shrink into dark corners to such a degree that they see darkly by day. No, men should combine these tendencies, and he who reposes should act, and he who acts should take repose. Discuss the problem with nature. She will tell you that she has
1: created both day and night. Farewell. Letter 6. On Sharing Knowledge I feel, my dear Lucilius, that
0: I am being not only reformed, but transformed. I do not yet, however, assure myself or indulge the hope that there are no elements left in me which need to be changed. Of course, there are many that should be made more compact, or made thinner or be brought into greater prominence. And indeed, this very fact is proof that my spirit is altered into something better, that it can see its own faults, of which it was previously ignorant. In certain cases, sick men are congratulated because they themselves have perceived that they are sick. I therefore wish to impart to you this sudden change in myself. I should then begin to place a surer trust in our friendship the true friendship, which hope and fear and self-interest cannot sever, the friendship in which, and for the sake of which, men meet death. I can show you many who have lacked not a friend, but a friendship. This, however, cannot possibly happen when souls are drawn together by identical inclinations into an alliance of honorable desires. And why can it not happen? Because in such cases, men know that they have all things in common especially their troubles you cannot conceive what distinct progress i notice that each day brings to me and when you say give me also a share in these gifts which you have found so helpful i reply that i am anxious to heap all these privileges upon you and that i am glad to learn in order that i may teach nothing will ever please me No matter how excellent or beneficial, if I must retain the knowledge of it to myself, and if wisdom were given me under the express condition that it must be kept hidden and not uttered, I should refuse it. No good thing is pleasant to possess without friends to share it. I shall therefore send to you the actual books, in an order that you may not waste time in searching here and there for profitable topics I shall mark certain passages so that you can turn at once to those which I approve and admire. Of course, however, the living voice and the intimacy of a common life will help you more than the written word. You must go to the scene of action. First, because men put more faith in their eyes than in their ears. And second, because the way is long if one follows precepts, but short and helpful if one follows patterns. Cleontes could not have been the express image of Zeno if he had merely heard his lectures. He shared in his life, saw into his hidden purposes, and watched him to see whether he lived according to his own rules. Plato, Aristotle, and the whole throng of sages, who were destined to go each his different way, derived more benefit from the character than from the words of Socrates. It was not the classroom of Epicurus, but living together under the same roof that made great men of Metrodorus, Hermarcus, and Polyainus. Therefore I summon you, not merely that you may derive benefit, but that you may confer benefit, for we can assist each other greatly. Meanwhile, I owe you my little daily contribution. You shall be told what pleased me today in the writings of Hicato. It is these words. What progress, you ask, have I made? I have begun to be a friend to myself. That was indeed a great benefit. Such a person can never be alone. You may be sure
1: that such a man is a friend to all mankind. Farewell. Letter 5 on the Philosopher's mean, I commend you, and
0: rejoice in the fact that you are persistent in your studies, and that, putting all else aside, you make it each day your endeavor to become a better man. I do not merely exhort you to keep at it. I actually beg you to do so. I warn you, however, not to act after the fashion of those who desire to be conspicuous rather than to improve, by doing things which will rouse comment as regards your dress or general way of living. Repellent attire, unkempt hair, slovenly beard, open scorn of silver dishes, a couch on the bare earth, and any other perverted forms of self-display are to be avoided. The mere name of philosophy, however quietly pursued, is an object of sufficient scorn. And what would happen if we should begin to separate ourselves from the customs of our fellow men? Inwardly we ought to be different in all respects, but our exterior should conform to society. Do not wear too fine, nor yet too frowzy, a toga. One needs no silver plate, encrusted and embossed in solid gold, but we should not believe the lack of silver and gold to be proof of the simple life let us try to maintain a higher standard of life than of the multitude, but not a contrary standard. Otherwise, we shall frighten away and repel the very persons whom we are trying to improve. We also bring it about that they are unwilling to imitate us in anything, because they are afraid, lest they might be compelled to imitate us in everything. The first thing which philosophy undertakes to give is fellow feeling with all men, in other words, sympathy and sociability. We part company with our promise, if we are unlike other men. We must see to it that the means by which we wish to draw admiration be not absurd and odious. Our motto, as you know, is, live according to nature. But it is quite contrary to nature to torture the body, to hate unlabored elegance, to be dirty, On purpose, to eat food that is not only plain, but disgusting and forbidding. Just as it is a sign of luxury to seek out dainties, so it is madness to avoid that which is customary and can be purchased at no great price. Philosophy calls for plain living, but not for penance, and we may perfectly well be plain and neat at the same time. This is the mean of which I approve, our life should observe a happy medium between the ways of a sage and the ways of the world at large. All men should admire it, but they should understand it also. Well then, shall we act like other men? Shall there be no distinction between ourselves and the world? Yes, a very great one. Let men find that we are unlike the common herd if they look closely. If they visit us at home, They should admire us, rather than our household appointments. He is a great man who uses earthenware dishes as if they were silver, but he is equally great who uses silver as if it were earthenware. It is the sign of an unstable mind not to be able to endure riches. But I wish to share with you today's prophet also. I find in the writings of our hikato that the limiting of desires helps also to cure fears.
1: Cease to hope, he says, and you will cease to fear. But how, you will reply, can things so
0: different go side by side? In this way, my dear Lucilius, though they do seem at variance, yet they are really united. Just as the same chain fastens the prisoner and the soldier who guards him, so hope and fear dissimilar as they are, keep step together. Fear follows hope. I am not surprised that they proceed in this way. Each alike belongs to a mind that is in suspense, a mind that is fretted by looking forward to the future. But the chief cause of both these ills is that we do not adapt ourselves to the present, but send our thoughts a long way ahead. And so, foresight, the noblest blessing of the human race, becomes perverted. Beasts avoid the dangers which they see, and when they have escaped them are free from care. But we men torment ourselves over that which is to come, as well as over that which is past. Many of our blessings bring bane to us, for memory recalls the tortures of fear, while foresight
1: anticipates them. The present alone can make no man wretched. Farewell. Letter Eight On the Philosopher's Seclusion Do you bid me, you say, shun the throng and withdraw from
0: men and be content with my own conscience? Where are the counsels of your school? which order a man to die in the midst of active work. As to the course which I seem to you to be urging on you now and then, my object in shutting myself up and locking the door is to be able to help a greater number. I never spend a day in idleness. I appropriate even a part of the night for study. I do not allow time for sleep, but yield to it when I must, and when my eyes are wearied with waking and ready to fall shut, I keep them. their task i have withdrawn not only from men but from affairs especially from my own affairs i am working for later generations writing down some ideas that may be of assistance to them there are certain wholesome counsels which may be compared to prescriptions of useful drugs these i am putting into writing for i have found them helpful in ministering to my own sores which if not wholly cured have at any rate ceased to spread. I point other men to the right path, which I have found late in life, when wearied with wandering. I cry out to them, Avoid whatever pleases the throng. Avoid the gifts of chance. Halt before every good which chance brings to you in a spirit of doubt and fear, for it is the dumb animals and fish that are deceived by tempting hopes. Do you call these things... The gifts of fortune? They are snares. And any man among you who wishes to live a life of safety will avoid, to the utmost of his power, these limed twigs of her favor, by which we mortals, most wretched in this respect also, are deceived. For we think that we hold them in our grasp, but they hold us in theirs. Such a career leads us into precipitous ways, and life on such heights ends in a fall. Moreover, we cannot even stand up against prosperity when she begins to drive us to leeward, nor can we go down either, with the ship at least on her course, or once for all. Fortune does not capsize us. She plunges our bows under and dashes us on the rocks. Hold fast, then, to the sound and wholesome rule of life, that you indulge the body only so far as is needful for good health. The body should be treated more rigorously that it may not be disobedient to the mind. Eat merely to relieve your hunger. Drink merely to quench your thirst. Dress merely to keep out the cold. House yourself merely as a protection against personal discomfort. It matters little whether the house be built of turf or of variously colored imported marble. Understand that a man is sheltered just as well by a thatch as by a roof of gold. Despise everything that useless toil creates as an ornament and an object of beauty, and reflect that nothing except the soul is worthy of wonder. For to the soul, if it be great, naught is great. When I commune in such terms with myself and with future generations, Do you not think that I am doing more good than when I appear as counsel in court, or stamp my seal upon a will, or lend my assistance in the Senate by word or action to a candidate? Believe me, those who seem to be busied with nothing are busied with the greater tasks. They are dealing at the same time with things mortal and things immortal. But I must stop and pay my customary contribution to balance this letter. The payment shall not be made from my own property, for I am still conning Epicurus. I read today, in his works, the following sentence. If you would enjoy real freedom, you must be the slave of philosophy. The man who submits and surrenders himself to her is not kept waiting. He is emancipated on the spot for the very service of philosophy, is freedom. It is likely that you will ask me why I quote so many of Epicurus's noble words, instead of words taken from our own school. But is there any reason why you should regard them as sayings of Epicurus, and not common property? How many poets give forth ideas that have been uttered, or may be uttered, by philosophers? I need not touch upon the tragedians and our writers of national drama, for these last are also somewhat serious, and stand halfway between comedy and tragedy. What a quantity of sagacious verses lie buried in the mime! How many of Publilius's lines are worthy of being spoken by buskin-clad actors, as well as wearers of the slipper? I shall quote one verse of his, which concerns philosophy and particularly that phase of it which we were discussing a moment ago, wherein he says that the gifts of chance are not to be regarded as part of our possessions. Still alien is whatever you have gained by coveting. I recall that you yourself expressed this idea much more happily and concisely. What chance has made yours is not really yours and a third, spoken by you still more happily, shall not be omitted. The good that could be given can be removed. I shall not charge this up to the expense account, because I have
1: given it to you from your own stock. Farewell. Letter Four On the Terrors of Death Keep on as you have begun and make all possible haste
0: so that you may have longer enjoyment of an improved mind, one that is at peace with itself. Doubtless you will derive enjoyment during the time when you are improving your mind and setting it at peace with itself, but quite different is the pleasure which comes from the contemplation when one's mind is so cleansed from every stain that it shines. You remember, of course, what joy you felt when you laid aside the garments of boyhood and donned the man's toga and were escorted to the forum. Nevertheless, you may look for a still greater joy when you have laid aside the mind of boyhood and when wisdom has enrolled you among men. For it is not boyhood that still stays with us, but something worse, boyishness. And this condition is all the more serious because we possess the authority of old age, together with the follies of boyhood, yea, even the follies of infancy. Boys fear trifles, children fear shadows, we fear both. All you need to do is to advance. You will thus understand that some things are less to be dreaded, precisely because they inspire us with great fear. No evil is great, which is the last evil of all. Death arrives. It would be a thing to dread, if it could remain with you, but death must either not come at all, or else must come and pass away. It is difficult, however, you say, to bring the mind to a point where it can scorn life. But do you not see what trifling reasons impel men to scorn life? One hangs himself before the door of his mistress. Another hurls himself from the housetop that he may no longer be compelled to bear the taunts of a bad-tempered master. A third, to be saved from arrest after running away, drives a sword into his vitals. Do you not suppose that virtue will be as efficacious as excessive fear? No man can have a peaceful life who thinks too much about lengthening it or believes that living through many consulships is a great blessing. Rehearse this thought every day, that you may be able to depart from life contentedly. For many men clutch and cling to life, even as those who are carried down a rushing stream clutch and cling to briars and sharp rocks. Most men ebb and flow in wretchedness between the fear of death and the hardships of life they are unwilling to live, and yet they do not know how to die. For this reason, make life as a whole agreeable to yourself, by banishing all worry about it. No good thing renders its possessor happy, unless his mind is reconciled to the possibility of loss. Nothing, however, is lost with less discomfort than that which, when lost, cannot be missed. Therefore, encourage and toughen your spirit against the mishaps that afflict even the most powerful. For example, the fate of Pompey was settled by a boy and a eunuch, that of Crassus by a cruel and insolent Parthian. Gaius Caesar ordered Lepidus to bare his neck for the axe of the Tribune Dexter, and he himself offered his own throat to Kyria. No man has ever been so far advanced by fortune That she did not threaten him as greatly as she had previously indulged him. Do not trust her seeming calm. In a moment the sea is moved to its depths. The very day the ships have made a brave show in the games, they are engulfed. Reflect that a highwayman or an enemy may cut your throat, and, though he is not your master, Every slave wields the power of life and death over you. Therefore, I declare to you, he is lord of your life that scorns his own. Think of those who have perished through plots in their own home, slain either openly or by guile. You will that, just as many have been killed by angry slaves, as by angry kings. What matter, therefore, how powerful he be whom you fear? when everyone possesses the power which inspires your fear. But, you will say, if you should chance to fall into the hands of the enemy, the conqueror will command that you be led away. Yes, whither you are already being led. Why do you voluntarily deceive yourself, and require to be told now for the first time what fate it is that you have long been laboring under, Take my word for it. Since the day you were born, you are being led thither. We must ponder this thought, and thoughts of the like nature, if we desire to be calm as we await that last hour, the fear of which makes all previous hours uneasy. But I must end my letter. Let me share with you the saying which pleased me today. It, too, is called from another man's garden. Poverty, brought into conformity with the law of nature, is great wealth. Do you know what limits that law of nature ordains for us? Merely to avert hunger, thirst, and cold. In order to banish hunger and thirst, it is not necessary for you to pay court at the doors of the purse-proud, or to submit to the stern frown, or to the kindness that humiliates, nor is it necessary for you to scour the seas, or go campaigning nature's needs are easily provided and ready to hand it is the superfluous things for which men sweat the superfluous things that wear our togas threadbare that force us to grow old and camp that dash us upon foreign shores that which is enough is ready to our hands
1: he who has made a fair compact with poverty is rich Farewell. Letter Seven On Crowds Do you ask me what you should
0: regard as especially to be avoided? I say crowds, for as yet you cannot trust yourself to them with safety. I shall admit my own weakness at any rate for I never bring back home the same character that I took abroad with me. Something of that which I have forced to be calm within me is disturbed. Some of the foes that I have routed return again. Just as the sick man, who has been weak for a long time, is in such a condition that he cannot be taken out of the house without suffering a relapse, so we ourselves are affected when our souls are recovering from a lingering disease. To consort with the crowd is harmful. There is no person who does not make some vice attractive to us, or stamp it upon us, or taint us unconsciously therewith. Certainly, the greater the mob with which we mingle, the greater the danger. But nothing is so damaging to good character as the habit of lounging at the games. For then it is that vice steals subtly upon one through the avenue of pleasure. What do you think I mean? I mean that I come home more greedy, more ambitious, more voluptuous, and even more cruel and inhuman because I have been among human beings. By chance, I attended a midday exhibition expecting some fun, wit, and relaxation. An exhibition at which men's eyes have respite from the slaughter of their fellow men. But it was quite the reverse. The previous combats were the essence of compassion, but now all the trifling is put aside and it is pure murder. The men have no defensive armor. They are exposed to blows at all points, and no one ever strikes in vain. Many persons prefer this program to the usual pairs and to the bouts by request. Of course they do. There is no helmet or shield to deflect the weapon. What is the need of defensive armor? Or of skill? All these mean delaying death. In the morning they throw men to the lions and the bears at noon, they throw them to the spectators. The spectators demand that the slayer shall face the man who is to slay him in his turn, and they always reserve the latest conqueror for another butchering. The outcome of every fight is death and the means of fire and sword. This sort of thing goes on while the arena is empty. You may retort, but he was a highway robber. He killed a man. And what of it? Granted that, as a murderer, he deserved this punishment. What crime have you committed, poor fellow, that you should deserve to sit and see this show? In the morning they cried, Kill him! Lash him! Burn him! Why does he meet the sword in so cowardly a way? Why does he strike so feebly? Why doesn't he die game? Whip him to meet his wounds! Let them receive blow for blow, with chests bare and exposed to the stroke. And when the games stop for the intermission, they announce, A little throat-cutting in the meantime, so that there may still be something going on. Come now. Do you not understand even this truth, that a bad example reacts on the agent? Thank the immortal gods that you are teaching cruelty to a person who cannot learn to be cruel. The young character, which cannot hold fast to righteousness, must be rescued from the mob. It is too easy to side with the majority. Even Socrates, Cato, and Lilius might have been shaken in their moral strength by a crowd that was unlike them. So true it is that none of us, no matter how much he cultivates his abilities, can withstand the shock of faults that approach, as it were, with so great a retinue. Much harm is done by a single case of indulgence or greed. The familiar friend, if he be luxurious, weakens and softens us imperceptibly. The neighbor, If he be rich, rouses our covetousness. The companion, if he be slanderous, rubs off some of his rust upon us, even though we be spotless and sincere. What, then, do you think the effect will be on character when the world at large assaults it? You must either imitate or loathe the world. But both courses are to be avoided. You should not copy the bad simply because they are many, nor should you hate the many because they are unlike you. Withdraw into yourself as far as you can. Associate with those who will make a better man of you. Welcome those whom you yourself can improve. The process is mutual, for men learn while they teach. There is no reason why pride in advertising your abilities should lure you into publicity. So that you should desire to recite or harangue before the general public. Of course, I should be willing for you to do so, if you had a stock in trade that suited such a mob. As it is, there is not a man of them who can understand you. One or two individuals will perhaps come in your way, but even these will have to be moulded and trained by you, so that they will understand you. You may say, For what purpose did I learn all these things? But you need not fear that you have wasted your efforts. It was for yourself that you learned them. In order, however, that I may not today have learned exclusively for myself, I shall share with you three excellent sayings of the same general purport which have come to my attention. This letter will give you one of them as payment of my debt, the other two you may accept as a contribution in advance. Democritus says, One man means as much to me as a multitude, and a multitude only as much as one man. The following also was nobly spoken by someone or other, for it is doubtful who the author was. They asked him, What was the object of all this study applied to an art that would reach but very few? He replied, I am content with few, content with one, content with none at all. The third saying, and a noteworthy one too, is by Epicurus, written to one of the partners of his studies.
1: I write this not for the many, but for you. Each of us is enough of an audience for the other.
0: Lay these words to heart, Lucilius. That you may scorn the pleasure which comes from the applause of the majority. Many men praise you, but have you any reason for being pleased with yourself if you are a person whom the many
1: can understand? Your good qualities should face inwards. Farewell. Tim Ferris Audio presents The
0: Tau of Seneca Practical Letters from a Stoic Master, Volume One. Performed by John A. Robinson, with a foreword by Tim Ferriss.
2: This is Tim Ferriss speaking, the producer of this audiobook. I am an author, perhaps best known for books with titles that sound like infomercial products, The Four Hour Workweek and The Four Hour Body, which are published in about forty-five languages or so, and I am a tech investor. And I've been involved early stage in companies like Facebook, Twitter, Uber, Alibaba, and perhaps 30 others. I only bring up this background because I credit my successes, whatever they might be, in many fields, including those, Tango, etc., to Stoicism and to reading the writing of specifically Seneca. And that is why I have put so much time into assembling And compiling this book and with the help of John bringing it to you. That is the narrator, John Robinson. Few of us consider ourselves philosophers, of course, and this is usually for very good reasons. Most of us can recall at least one very irritating pseudo-intellectual, probably in college, who dedicated countless hours to some type of philosophical tail chasing. And so we associate philosophy with this type of behavior. For what? Well, maybe this person was debating what is is but somehow posturing as a superior intellect at mealtime or over drinks. It's very irritating. It's very useless, and not unlike the bar scene in Goodwill Hunting, perhaps. But it is for academics. And I think it is for theory. These are beliefs that many of us have about philosophy. It's something that you do over wine for fun, but it doesn't apply to real life. Fortunately, there are a few no nonsense philosophical systems that can produce dramatic real-world effects and results. These were forged and refined in action, sometimes war. Stoicism is, to me, perhaps one of the best examples of that, and that's what we'll focus on. Think of it as an ideal operating system for thriving in high-stress environments, and that is certainly why it's gained a huge foothold in Silicon Valley, as one example, and professional sports. So if you study stoicism, you'll be in very good company. It's a rule book for making better decisions. It was popular with the educated elite of the Greco-Roman Empire, but Thomas Jefferson also had Seneca on his bedside table. Montaigne had a quote from Epictetus carved into the ceiling of his house where he would see it constantly. Bill Clinton reads Meditations by Marcus Aurelius every year. In the NFL, and this has become big news with an article in Sports Illustrated, management, coaches, and players alike, including teams like the Patriots and Seahawks, have embraced Stoicism because it makes them better competitors. Other proponents include John Stuart Mill and Tom Wolfe. As I record this, you might hear that my voice is a little hoarse. I just finished a 10-day water-only fast, and I don't necessarily recommend doing that, but it's part of a practice that comes directly from the writing of Seneca, specifically letter 18, which you'll hear on festivals and fasting. And here is an excerpt to give you a flavor. Set aside a certain number of days during which you shall be content with the scantiest and cheapest affair with coarse and rough dress saying to yourself all the while, is this the condition I so feared? It is precisely in times of immunity from care that the soul should toughen itself beforehand for occasions of greater stress. And it is while fortune is kind that it should fortify itself against her violence. And it goes on and on. But that particular passage, and there's there's a lot more context to it, led me to the practice of taking a few days per month to eat the cheapest of food. So for instance, rice and beans, every meal, rice and beans, costs $1 to $2 a day if you break it down, wearing the same clothing, say the same white t-shirt and pair of jeans, remaining unshaven, asking myself all the while, is this the condition I so feared? What does that mean? It means that you are inoculating yourself against unfounded fears because when I find myself defensive, fearful of losing whatever success or money or prestige or status I might have, whatever that is, or it could be any number of other types of fears, they're usually nebulous. You worry that your quality of life will drop. You'll be very unhappy. But if you rehearse that condition, the worst case scenario, you realize that it's not that bad. And that is tremendously empowering. It allows you to make better investment decisions. It allows you to take the steps to start your own company, quit your job, start a relationship, end a relationship, because you are rehearsing the worst-case scenarios instead of letting them bounce around in your skull in a very unformed, nebulous way. So that is one of dozens of examples that I could give you. The principles are timeless and incredibly practical. And I particularly like Seneca. I love Marcus Aurelius. I love Epictetus. But I particularly love Seneca because it's easy to read, it's pithy, and the practices can be applied directly to your life now. If you were to take some of these letters and replace the names, Lucilius and other Roman-sounding names, with John, Mary, (laughs) Edward, they would read like letters from one of your contemporary friends to another. Hey John, so sorry to hear that you're dealing with that frivolous lawsuit. Let me tell you how I handled this and how I deal with backstabbing in the Senate and give you a few tips. Hey Mary, I'm so sorry to hear that your friend's mother passed away. Here's how you might console her, etc., etc. They are extremely memorable and that is because Seneca was one of the most famous playwrights of his day. And that leads to another point... His principles, his philosophies were used on the front lines. He was one of the wealthiest people in Rome as, in effect, an investment banker, I suppose you could think of him as such. He was also an advisor to the emperor. Uh, That didn't uh, always work out all too well for him, but that's part of stoicism. The point being that he was world class in several fields. He had to deal with uncooperative, powerful, in many cases, human beings all the time, and he was able to do well. And I think that's what separates the philosophers, so to speak, who actually can put rubber to the road and make things happen, and philosophologists, uh, as many other people have said, those people who speculate, the armchair quarterbacks. Seneca was not one of these people. He was he was getting his hands dirty and doing big things. And the way that I suggest you approach this, and this is certainly the way I have approached it and many people have, is making seneca part of your daily practice and the way that you do that is set aside 10 to 15 minutes a day for me it is often walking to get my morning cup of coffee and i will listen to one letter a day and this is highly therapeutic it is highly effective as a habit if you want to be more successful in any area personal or professional stoic principles are often practiced in rehabilitation clinics for instance with alcoholics they don't succumb to impulses In the most practical sense, I suppose, it does share a lot in common with cognitive behavioral therapy. In a sense, you could think of it as putting the first portion of the serenity prayer into action, which reads, there are many translations, of course, as, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Stoicism is the training ground for putting this into action. So you have to digest it, just like good nutrition, a little bit, every day, put in the time. One letter, five to 15 minutes. It might have been porn on the porch of Zeno, but it can be used everywhere in the concrete jungle. And I'll recommend a few letters to start with. If you want to bounce around, I suggest you listen to all of them. They will apply to you in your life at different points. Three of my favorites are 13, 18, and 27. So letter 13 on groundless fears, letter 18 on festivals and fasting, Letter 27, On the Good Which Abides, which is also hilarious. Uh, John Robinson, his favorites do not overlap. They will be very personal. But if you want a few recommendations to start with, start at the beginning of this audiobook, Volume 1, because it features On the Shortness of Life, which I read and listen to at least once a quarter, usually once a month. And then letters 13, 18, and 27. And I have to, before I part give a heartfelt thanks to John Robinson. John Robinson, I found on the internet, I was searching for an audiobook of Seneca's letters and essays, and I couldn't find it. And then one day, John Robinson's website pops up. It turns out he's a fan of mine in the four hour work week, heard me talking about Seneca in many different interviews, tried to find an audiobook, also couldn't, decided to make it himself and put together, I think it was 10 to 30 draft essays. Uh, I downloaded them when I was in Costa Rica and needed some recalibration. I needed to address some unfounded fears of my own. And I was blown away. Whatever voice I had in my head for Seneca, it was John. It was perfect. And I reached out to him. We started to collaborate. We put this entire thing together. And he has just been a superstar. So thank you very much, John. And thank you to all of you for listening. I'm so excited and envious of you in a way. If you've never heard or been exposed to Seneca before. And as he would say, take care.